When you are free, you live a life that sets other people free. God has more for you than you can ever imagine. Three words, hope, health, and healing. Amen by myself. Welcome to Midtown. Peter Mutabazi is a friend of World Vision. He's a friend of ours, and uh, he's written this book, Now I Am Known. Would you please welcome my friend, Peter, who's going to come out now. Man, so glad you're with us, brother. So um, you you have an incredible story, but it, it starts, your story begins in a very, very tough place, in a tough condition. So, uh, so Peter... Where, where does your story begin? Well, thank you so much. Well, I come from a world that uh, I was so uh, poor, or we are so poor, that no one ever told me to dream. No one ever told me that there was a future for me. I didn't have a name until when I was two years old. Why? Because for every 100 children who were born in my village, 60 would die before the age of two. So most moms would hold on naming their kids, because once you name a child, you get attached to that name for the rest of your life. So they will hold on. So at two, she named me a gift given to me by God. So that's what I come from. You know, a world where I didn't have a meal. I had one meal every other day. The only day I had a different meal was on Christmas. We had chicken and on Easter, beef. So those are the only two days I had a different meal. And most of them, we didn't see it because men came first, women and children last. So for me, there wasn't really a glimpse of hope. I went to fetch water three miles away at the age of four, one way back. So you can imagine that there's no future when you have to do that twice as a kid, that I never had a childhood at all. At the age of four, I began to realize that not only were we poor, but my father was the most abusive human being you could imagine. So you have poverty on one side, but you had a mean dad in your own home that was really difficult to dream. And not only that, but the only person that loved me was my mom, but she was re- receiving the same abuse as I was. And most of them, because of our fault. If mama asked for food, she got the beatings on our behalf. So for me, I grew up really never wanting to see the next day because the next day was worse than the previous day. So at the age of 10, I thought, my father is going to kill me. So why give him the opportunity to do so? So I had never been 20 miles away from my village. And I went to the bus station and I asked, of all these buses, which one goes the farthest? And the lady said that one, and I got on that bus, and I ran 500 kilometers away. And I ended up in Kampala and had one option, and that one option was to be a street kid. So I was a street kid for five years, where life was miserable in every shape form you could imagine. I was a garbage boy. I was stupid. That's what I was called, that I would never mount anything. The most time, people will not give you food. They throw it in the garbage so you can go get it there before the dogs got it. So that's how I felt, like I was this of a human being, and that became my life. Yes, the abuse was worse a hundred times, but there was a difference. I was being abused by strangers who did not know me. So in some way, it didn't matter. I was garbage anyway, and that was my life for five years. But then you had this moment where everything changed for you, where you had an encounter with someone who saw you different than the rest of the experiences you had. What was that like? Well, you know, as three kids, we would always steal while we're helping. So I tried to follow one man. You know, he was wearing glasses and wearing khakis. So if you're wearing khakis and glasses today, be careful. Uh, because to us, that was a sign. I can t- take food from you. Steal while I'm helping you. So he was buying food. So I followed him, you know. And before I could steal his food, he said, stop. What's your name? And that really rattled me. 
because for five years, no human being had ever asked me what my name was. So he said, what's your name? And he gave me food. I saw him the next week, the next week, and he fed me for one year and a half. And one day he said, Peter, if you have an opportunity to go to school, would you love to go to school? And I was like, no, because I'm a garbage boy, and I was never told I would never mount anything. So why should I go to school? And he said, you have a potential, and I want to do something for you. So he put me in school, and that changed my life forever. That I went to high school, I went to university in Uganda, I went to university in England, and that's how I came to the United States. And that's what changed my life. And not just me, but my entire family. I'm the oldest of five, uh, but all my siblings have gone through university. Why? Because he made me feel that I was known, that I could do something. That my little brothers and sisters said, if Peter can do it, we can do it as well. And that's what changed my life. And my family became believers as well. Because for my mother was, how can a stranger love my child as theirs? If so... That they love the Lord, I ought to love the Lord, and that's how they became believers. Amen. 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 So, Peter, so after that, uh, you fast forward years later, you've, you've now become like a celebrity because in, in America, so, so if you follow this guy on social media, you're like a celebrity serial foster dad. So, you, you take in kids. So, because of your experience of being seen, being chosen and knowing that you're chosen by God and how it transformed your life. Now look at your family that you, you're a foster dad. And can I just say, these are vanilla children that you've brought into your home. This is like even the dog in the corner is vanilla. Look at the dog is white. You, so you, you, so it looks like you're also about racial reconciliation, building a home that, that looks like the kingdom of God. You have become a father to so many choosing them as you've been chosen. But you also have this experience of a child choosing you. So, because usually with, with foster kids, like they come and then they stay for a little period of time and then they go. But you had an experience where a, a child said, I choose you. Share that story. Well, absolutely. And here's why I became a foster dad. When I came to the United States, I was given food and I saw how much food was thrown away after. And I asked God, like, there's no way you can love us the same way that others can have so much thrown away but others can die for lack of beans. I've lost my members of my family, not because they, they couldn't afford the medication, but they got malaria. When you haven't eaten for days, you lose your life, you know? So when I came and I saw that food, I said, God, how can you love them more than you love us, you know? But then I was also convicted as well, because now I was a kid who was a street kid here. I'm in the United States, and I'm going to school. And so for me, Luke 12, 8 really convicted me. To whom much is given, much is required. That I walked in the foster care system, I said, I want to be a foster dad. I'm a single foster dad. I've had 32 children, and now I have six, and I've adopted one. And that's the one you're talking about. So as foster parents, we have what we call respite. You know, don't believe in respite, because kids come, and they never go back. So I got a kid. Someone called at the hospital, said, there's a little boy at the hospital. Would you take him in? And I said, no, I, I can't. They said, please, take him in. We'll pick him on, on, on Monday. So I said, Absolutely. So as soon as he walked in, he was in my house for 20 minutes. I said, my name is Peter Mutabazi, but you can call me Mr. Peter. And he looked in my eyes and said, but can I call you my dad? Well, that's not really what I said. Mm, this is what I said. To be honest, I said, hell no. <laughs> Sorry. We in church. Sorry. But that's how I, I just said, no, no, no. Because he was my number 11. 
you have kids come and go, and one walks in and said, you might have like, oh, don't tease me, because I've seen that before. So I said no. And then he looks at me and said, but I was told, since I'm 11 years old, I can choose who my father should be. So I choose you to be my dad. I still said no, you're going on Monday. But on Monday, I got to know his story. He was adopted at four, and now at 11, a family that had adopted him had dropped him at the hospital, never said goodbye, or gave him the reason why they didn't need him anymore. So in some way, I went back to my 10-year-old, and I said, he's already called me dad. I know he'll be my So he's my adopted son, Anthony Mutabas, the one with curly with hair. With the curly hair right that there. One. That's your son. Yes. We'll be back to this podcast episode shortly, but we wanted to take this time to give you an opportunity to give. Why do we give? At Midtown, we believe that giving is both an act of worship and a command. And the psalmist says that the earth is the Lord's and everything in it. So when we give, we're simply giving back to God what belongs to God in the first place. For those of you who give regularly, thank you. And if you're new around here, there's no obligation to give. We just encourage you to give however God is leading you. You can give digitally on our website or our app, but let's take a moment to pray right now. God, thank you that you have given us an opportunity to partner with you in the work that you want to do to display your goodness and your love to the world around us. So God, take this offering right now, multiply it, and use it for the good of your people and for your glory. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Now let's get back to our podcast episode. So we want to share with you again, there's an opportunity with our partners with World Vision. So in, in less than two weeks, Danish and I are going to Ghana. And, um, and, and like I said, part of us going there is because there are a thousand kids that are in need of people to see them and to see their potential. And so uh, what we're asking is that uh, we, we had said a minimum of 250 families would say yes to be chosen. Usually when this happens, uh, when, when you partner with an organization like World Vision, we have packets out here, and you go and choose one and say, I'll sponsor this kid. But no, we're doing it different. We're, we're saying, would you, um, would you agree to go and have your picture taken and have a packet created of you? Then Danish and I are going to go to Ghana with your packets. We're going to hang them up, and the kids are going to choose you. And then we're going to come back here and have a reveal party, and you're going to see what kid, who, who chose you. Our hope is, we said 250 families, but come on, we're a church of close to 4,000 people that, that come here. We can do better than that. I think we can do 400 families. We already had a line last service of people lining up out there saying that they would do this. And so this is the way me and Pastor Bob are encouraging you to help celebrate our birthday is by having a global impact. We're hoping you'll say yes to do this again today. Amen? We're going to be back at the very end of service uh, to, to share again how you can step into this commitment. But uh, I want to, without further ado, introduce one of our pastors, my sister, the Korean soul sister from Canada through South Central and Long Beach all the way to our staff. She is the illustrious, the anointed, the brilliant, the theological prophetess, Susie Gomez. Well, 
that's quite the introduction to come to. Thank you for that. Um, well, today we are going to continue our series, or actually start our series, called Chosen, Joining God's Concern for the Vulnerable. And, and what a way to start. Like, Peter's testimony is incredible, isn't it? I mean, he, he is a, a showcase of how transformative, redemptive, and empowering the love of God is. Amen? Because someone took the time to show Peter when he was most vulnerable, love and concern, Peter is now able to join with God in showing love and concern to others. Peter's life embodies the title of today's message, which is actually this. It's, it's the blessing of becoming disadvantaged. The blessing of becoming disadvantaged. Now, I know that this statement might need a little bit of explanation because if we're being honest, most of us don't like being at a disadvantage, do we? Be real, right? I mean, I'll, I'll use my kids as an example. If I give them a cookie or a dessert or a piece of candy to share because they've already had too much sugar, um, I'll tell them to split it. And what they'll do instinctively is they'll split the cookie and then hold it up and examine it really carefully. They'll examine it and make sure that they get the bigger piece for themselves, right? And then, you know, you and I, when, when we go to Costco, what do we do? Instinctively, we're looking for the closest spot possible, right? I mean, we're not usually thinking, let me leave the, the, the closer spots open for those who need it most. No, we're on the hunt. We're looking for the closest spot, the, 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 the spot that will get us closest to the door and will require the least amount of steps possible. And I think it's funny that we do this even when we're going to the gym, going to get a workout in, but we still got to get that rock star parking. And we pat ourselves on the back when we get that rock star parking, right? That one spot right next to the handicap spot. Yeah, I got the best spot in the lot. You know, it's, uh, it's because we don't like being at a disadvantage. We want the best. We want the biggest. We want the fastest, the greatest. We want to be the best. We want to be the greatest. And when our team is in the playoffs, for the first time in 16 years, I mean, y'all aren't ex excited as a uh, first service was. They were like cheering and hooting. And okay, when your team is in the playoffs for the first time in 16 years, you get really excited about the fact that your team has home court advantage, right? And I think their victory last night might have had something to do with the fact that they had home court advantage. Maybe it had something to do with Pastor Bob and his anointed chapel that he had ahead of time too. But you know, we love a home court advantage. Uh, we, we, we love to, to shout in victory. We love to say, light the beam when they win, right? See, I'm catching on. I'm, I'm getting some sacramental pride in me. Um, we get excited about the playoffs because it gives our team, our city, a chance to get that coveted title of champions, the best, the greatest. What does Jesus have to say about greatness? What does Jesus have to say about being great? What does the King of Kings and Lord of Lords, the, the greatest of all time, have to say about what true greatness is? Before we look at the scriptures to discover that, let's pause and, and pray just a, another quick second, can we? God, we thank you that we have the freedom to come together today and hear a word from you. May my words be anointed. May I be faithful to the word that you've put before us. And may we have ears to hear. 
and you give us eyes to see and hearts that are ready to receive. Let us leave this place different because we have met with you. Lord, have your way in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, In this message, I'm going to talk about what it feels like to be seen. And on that note, I just want to give a shout out to those who are online right now. If you guys didn't know, we're starting to live stream our, uh, our services. So ever since Easter of last week, when you come to 930 service, there's an online audience that's watching with us. So we are a multitude in numbers. So welcome to the online audience right now. Um, we are about to look, yes, we are about to look at a passage of scripture that's found in Matthew 20. Now in Matthew 20 verses 20 through 28, Jesus gives us a glimpse of what true greatness really means. But, but before we get there, let me set it up with just a little bit of context for you. So Jesus had just predicted his death for the third time. Okay? He had told them ahead of time what was going to happen on multiple occasions. He, he said it to them plainly. He said he was going to be handed over to the chief priests, condemned to death, even mocked, flogged, and crucified. And then on the third day, be raised. He stated it clearly to them, but they still could not comprehend that this was actually going to happen because it just didn't seem to make sense. Really, Jesus? Are you speaking in metaphors here again? Because that just doesn't make sense to me. For as much time as they spent with him, for as many teachings that they sat under, for as many miracles that they witnessed, many of the disciples, just like us, were often slow to understand It was after Jesus had told them the parable of the workers in the vineyard, where he said that the last shall be first and the first shall be last. And it's after he had predicted his death for the third time that in verse 20, it says this. Then the mother of Zebedee's sons came to Jesus with her sons. This was the two disciples, James and John. And kneeling down, she asked a favor of him. What is it you want? He asked. She said, grant that one of these two sons of mine may sit at your right and the other at your left in the kingdom. You don't know what you're asking, Jesus said to them. Can you drink the cup that I am going to drink? We can, they answered. And Jesus said to them, you will indeed drink from my cup, but to sit at my right or left is not for me to grant. These places belong to those for whom they have been prepared by my father. Now, when the other 10 heard about this, they were indignant with the two brothers and they were thinking to themselves, who do these guys think they are? Look at these guys trying to sneak away, trying to get the advantage, trying to get the upper hand. They were indignant. And then Jesus called them together and said, you know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them and their high officials exercise authority over them, but not so with you. Instead, whoever wants to become great among you must first be your servant, and whoever wants to be great must first be your slave, just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Like I said, Zebedee's sons, they were James and John. And although she's not named here, their mother, her name was Salome. Now, I, I can't help but laugh a little at this story, not because it's, it's funny, but, but because I can relate. I can actually see this happening, even here and now. And, uh, you know, not that any of you here at Midtown would be this kind of parent, but, you know, there, there's some parents out there that I've heard about uh, that can be those kind of parents, those parents that will do crazy things 
to try to get their kids ahead. Those parents that will do anything to try to give their kids an advantage. When it comes to seeing their kids get ahead in life or have an advantage over others, for some parents, there's just no shame in their game. (laughs) They do it in the name of love. They'll get really bold about asking for things because they want to make sure that their kids get what they need. But if we're being blunt, it's often not what they need. It's, it's what they want. They're asking for what they want. They want the opportunity to be great, to get all the free creams and lotions. And if you guys don't know where that's from, that's actually from Nacho Libre, okay? So don't go looking for that in, in the scriptures, okay? But they, they, want the, the, they want the advantages that come with being associated to greatness and power. And I, I think what Salome is doing by asking Jesus Grant that my sons would sit and your, at your left and your right. It, it, is, is she saying, Jesus, give them an advantage, will you? By letting them be close to you. By, by letting them be proximate to your power and your authority and your greatness. Maybe some of that will rub off on my kids and maybe they'll be seen in the eyes of the world as being great and important as well. Maybe she thought that her sons would go down as some of the greats in history. And that they did, but not in the way that they could have imagined. Jesus, he calls them out on it right away. He says, you don't know what you're asking. Your ideas of of what greatness really is, well, that's not really what it is. I wonder if what James and John and their mother Salome thought sitting at the right and left of Jesus meant was that they'd be living the lifestyles of the rich and famous, I wonder if they thought that they'd be living in the ancient equivalent of the hashtag blessed life. Uh, If it were modern day times, I wonder if if they imagined that they'd be getting selfies with Jesus. And when they posted that picture, they'd be racking up the likes and the comments. And and as as, as they started to go viral because who who they were proximate to, I I wonder if they thought that they'd be um, eating like kings too, living like kings. People would be looking at their life with all this envy and they'd be thinking to themselves, yeah, I know you want to be on my level, right? I wonder if they thought that being proximate to Jesus and sitting at his right and his left because he was a king meant that they were going to live like kings of this world. They wouldn't have to lift a finger. They'd have people that would be at their beck and call. They'd be enjoying all the luxury and comforts of life in the kingdom. So after Jesus says to them, you don't know what you're asking, he poses a question back to them and he says, can you drink from the cup that I I'm going to drink from, that I drink from. And they say, oh, yeah, 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 we can. Again, not quite understanding what Jesus really meant by that. The cup that Jesus refers to is the cup of suffering. So when he asks them, can you drink from the cup that I'm going to drink from? He's saying, I know you want to join me on this journey. I know you want to be close to me at my right and my left. I know you want the pleasures and the comforts at the right and left of me in the kingdom, but first, can you join me in the suffering and the hardship of this world here and now, is what he's asking. There is a kingdom coming when all things will be made perfect, when pleasure and comfort will be there for all of us, and there will be constant joy because there is no more pain and all things have been made perfect. When Jesus returns, all things will be made new, and so that world will be gone, and we will know this life that they coveted. But first, 
there was going to be some hardship and some suffering. James and John would indeed drink from the cup that Jesus drank from. They would take up their own crosses later on. But just like Jesus, their suffering would not be in vain. It would be for the sake of others. You know, there's a saying that the church is built on the blood of the martyrs. The church is built on the blood of the martyrs. And James and John were some of those disciples on whom the church was built. When Salome asked if her sons, James and John, could sit at the right and left of Jesus, I imagine she, she pictured them sitting on thrones like kings of a kingdom would, right? But Jesus, he was a different kind of king. Instead of being seated at his throne, he would first be led to the cross. He was a different kind of king. And, and you know, it, it's noted that Salome was one of the women that were there to witness the crucifixion of Christ. She was at the foot of the cross and she saw Jesus raised up on that cross. And I wonder if those words rang in her head, women, you don't know what you're asking when you're asking for your sons to be proximate to me. I wonder what she thought when she looked up and she saw Jesus hanging on the cross and on the left and on the right of him were two thieves also hanging on a cross. I wonder what she thought greatness really meant started to get reordered. You know, James and John would eventually take up their own cross, the metaphoric cross in some senses. They, they would eventually get their crown of glory, but first they had to go through some hardship. They had to put themselves at a disadvantage for the advantage of others, just like Jesus did. They came a long way from the time when they asked Jesus for what they thought was a position of greatness in this world. Philippians 2, 5 through 8 says this, in your relationships with one another, have the same mindset of Christ Jesus, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking on the very nature of a servant being made in human likeness and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. So James and John, they saw that what made Jesus great wasn't the fact that he was bigger, stronger, smarter, or more powerful than everyone else. Jesus wasn't king because he lorded his authority over people. Jesus was a great king because he was a humble king. Jesus was a great king, a humble king, because he laid his authority down for the sake of others. I'm going to quote Pastor Bob here and say that what Jesus did is he put himself at a disadvantage for the advantage of others. That's where we get the title of this message today from. Jesus put himself at a disadvantage for the advantage of others. He took a huge loss so that you and I might win. This is what made Jesus so great. James and John saw for themselves the truth that Jesus did not come to be served, but to serve. They saw Jesus demonstrate the power of humility and selflessness. There was something otherworldly about Jesus. He just did things differently. Yes, he was a king and he spoke with authority and he had so much love for people, but he did it so differently. There was something different about Jesus. They came to see firsthand the greatness that comes from serving others. 
and serving a greater purpose than themselves. They came to see the truth of Ephesians 2.10. Ephesians 2.10 that says, we are God's handiwork. We are his masterpiece. We are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus to do good works. You were chosen with purpose, for purpose. You were created to do good works, which God prepared in advance for you to do. Are you gonna have ears to hear? Are you gonna have eyes to hear? A heart to obey the calling of God to join him in his purpose. But I want, I want you to remember, it's not, it's not good works that saves us. It's through faith in Christ and the grace, the grace abundant in Christ Jesus that we're saved. But good works, service, is the mark of the master creator in us. We were chosen by God for a greater purpose than ourselves. Here's the thing about Ephesians 2.10. I think it indicates a, a sequence of events that, that follows that greatest command to love the Lord with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, and to love others as you love yourself. I reference this all the time because Jesus says, this is the sum of all the commandments. Love God, love others as you love yourself. And when you do this well, when you know whose you are, when you know that you were made in the image of God for good purpose, when you know that your identity is rooted in God and you're loved lavishly by God, the infilling, the indwelling of the Holy Spirit will pour out over, out of you. And the natural response will be to love one another. And that's expressed in service. You will live a life that, that, that resembles Jesus who put his life down, who put others above himself, who put himself at a disadvantage so that we could have the advantage. When we know that we're made in the image of that God, we will follow suit. When we're filled with the Holy Spirit that loves us lavishly, we will overflow with love. When I know who I am, whose I am, and my cup overflows, with the love and goodness of God, I know that I have everything I need because I belong to God. See, the desire and the ability to serve others comes from a filling of the Holy Spirit. But there's a book out there called The, the Spiritual Disciplines Handbook. And the author, Audrey Alberg Calhoun, she lists service as a spiritual discipline. It's a spiritual practice that shapes and forms us to be more like Jesus. Now, spiritual disciplines are not meant to like discipline you in an angry way. Spiritual disciplines or spiritual practices are there to help us to be shaped and formed more like Jesus. And we have to be intentional about practicing those spiritual disciplines. So she says, serving is an intentional act of worship. It's a practice that shapes us to be more like Jesus. However... Before you can see the value in serving, you must first see the value of people. Before you can see the value of serving, you must first see the value of people because service is rooting, rooted in seeing as God sees, seeing other people as God sees them. You need a heart that's transformed by God to see differently. Mother Teresa said, I see Jesus in every human being. I say to myself, this is hungry Jesus, I must feed him. This is sick Jesus. This one has leprosy or gangrene, I must wash and tend to him. I serve because I love Jesus. This is the embodiment, the expression of Matthew 25 
that says, whatever you did for the least of these, these are the words of Jesus, whatever you did for the least of these, you did it for me. Now, I know it can be intimidating using examples like Jesus and Mother Teresa. I know I'm no Mother Teresa, and the bar is pretty high there, but you know, I, I have a, a friend, a brother in Christ, a real-life person, our contemporary, who, who makes it a point to see people. His name's Terrence Lester. He lives out in Atlanta. And um, he, he makes it a point to, to see people really well. He, um, he actually wrote a book called I See You. And, and, and this comes from his own testimony, sort of like Peter's where he was someone who lived feeling unseen and then he was seen by God and God transformed him and now he makes it a mission to, to care for the vulnerable, the unseen of the world, especially in his community in Atlanta. So um, Terrence, he makes it a point to see particularly the poor and the disenfranchised and the unhoused. Uh, he really believes in the power of proximity. And so he, he not only preaches about it and writes about it and teaches about it, but, but he lives it. And so he often spends time on the streets of Atlanta just getting, getting to know, making friends with people who are unhoused or, or experiencing homelessness. And one of his friends, Kurt, one day said to him, you know, Terrence, I know you're out here telling us that we should go you know, find some shelter in the shelters or go find some, some services, but you don't know how hard it really is. In fact, I'm going to challenge you, Terrence. I'm going to challenge you for one night, just one night, go sleep in a shelter and see how hard it really is. And so Terrence, he went home and he prayed about it. He talked to his wife about it. He said, okay, I'm going to go do it. So he, he left the comforts of his home, his two kids, his wife. And, and for a week, he spent time living amongst his friends who were unhoused. And he found out pretty quickly that first night as they tried to find shelter in a shelter, just how hard living in a shelter could be. This is why sometimes people choose to live on the streets instead. Terrence gained a much better understanding of why sleeping in the streets is easier than living in a shelter because he lived it himself. He was proximate to his friends. He didn't just hear about it. He experienced it. And because he got proximate, his eyes were opened. He was able to see differently because he got close. So he wrote this book, I See You, How Love Opens Our Eyes to the Invisible People Around Us. Terrence said, it's hard to care about things that we don't see. So let's get intentional about seeing things because God sees them and God cares for them. Do you know how powerful it is to say to someone, I see you? How powerful was it for Peter to have somebody ask him, what is your name? He was seen and his life was transformed because of that. This is what so much of Jesus's ministry was. He, he, he saw people that the world didn't like to see. He spent time with the woman at the well uh, he, he, he spent time with the woman who had the issue of bleeding, the unclean woman who spent so much time trying to be unseen by other people and who people didn't really want to see because she was unclean. He, he saw the man who was lame by the water for 38 years. He saw the lepers. He saw the blind and the broken, and he loved them. He got proximate to them. Jesus partied with the tax collectors, and he gave dignity to women who were labeled all such things by the world. And he saw them not for their labels, but because he saw the image of God in them. You know, you might not see yourself as an outcast in society. You might not be a leper. You might not be unclean in the eyes of the world. Uh, maybe you've got a good job. Maybe you've got a nice home. You've got at least a couple of friends and at least a couple of family members who don't hate you. 
But let's not forget that you and I, all of us, have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, as it says in Romans 3.23. We have all sinned and fall short of the glory of God, and you and I are in need of those mercies that are new every morning. Yeah, we're no Mother Teresa. And oftentimes, we fall short, and we need those mercies to be new to us every day. We need to be reminded that we were once objects of wrath, but we were in need of love and mercy and salvation. And because of his great love for us, he was willing to put himself at a disadvantage for our advantage. What if we were willing to do the same for others? Now, I'm not saying that you have to go live on the streets. I'm not saying that you have to take a a lesser paying job. I'm not saying that you have to come in last on purpose. Uh, No, there's a call on our lives to do things with excellence. There's a call on our lives, whether you eat or drink, whatever you do, do it unto the glory of God. So do it with excellence. But I wonder if this has more to do with seeing the bigger picture in everything that we do. There's a bigger picture. There is a purpose greater than ourselves. And you never know how that little act of service, that little act of love, that that going the extra mile to see somebody that often goes unseen might have a ripple effect for all of eternity. Things that we do with great love can have a great ripple effect for all of eternity. Now, years ago, probably about 20 years ago now, I was at a youth workers conference uh, and Stephen Baldwin was there. Do you guys know the actor Stephen Baldwin? Um, Alec Baldwin's brother. Uh, some of you might know him as um, Haley Bieber's dad. <laughs> so Justin Bieber's father-in-law essentially is who Stephen Baldwin is, okay? Um, but Stephen Baldwin was, was still very new in his faith back in the early 2000s. And I remember being at a youth conference and he came on stage to give his testimony. And so um, he, he tells his testimony about how, you know, he's been in the industry for a long time. He's been acting and, and he, by this time, had got, gotten some fame and fortune, had a beautiful wife and kids. And he said, but, but I knew that there was something still missing. He, he had a drug addiction. He was, he was going to self-medicate with things that just weren't fulfilling him. And, and he said, you know, at that time, something really miraculous happened. God, God sent us this woman who was, who was sent to be our housekeeper. Um, she was a woman from Brazil who loved the Lord. And he said that she, she was, her joy was just so evident. And everything that she did, she took seriously that scripture that says, whether you eat or drink, whatever you do, do it unto the glory of God. She sang, she talked about Jesus, she sang about Jesus. And he said at first it was kind of annoying. But then eventually he got curious. And he asked her, what, what is it? Like you, by the world standard, it, I mean, it seems like I have more than you do, but there's something in you that, that seems different. And he said, I'll never forget this. She turned to me with sort of a laugh and she said, oh, Mr. Baldwin, you think that I was sent here to be your housekeeper, but God has a much greater purpose in that. God has a much greater purpose in that. She went there knowing and believing, praying that their family would be saved. And because of her witness, because of her acts of service, knowing that there was a bigger picture in mind, their whole family came to Christ. So rich or poor, famous or not, serving is rooted in seeing, seeing people as God sees them. Once you see people and you see the mark of the master in them, you'll come to realize that service is also compelled by a desire to make God's love known. If you have the riches of Christ in you, there is something that compels you to share the riches of Christ with others. 
Service starts with seeing, but it's powered by love. So Dr. King, Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. is rightfully so considered a hero of the faith and one of the greatest of all time when it comes to civil rights and the fight for justice. But I believe that Dr. King was able to march through many of those hardships and those struggles, A, through prayer and the power of the Holy Spirit, but also because he believed this quote that is attributed to him. He believed his own quote that says, everybody can be great. Everybody can be great because everybody can serve. You don't have to have a college degree to serve. You don't have to make your subject and your verb agree to serve. You only need a heart full of grace, a soul generated by love. Now, right around that same time that Dr. King was quoted as saying this, in 1962, President John F. Kennedy visited NASA for the very first time. And when he visited, he met a janitor. This janitor was holding a broom and President Kennedy saw him down the hallway and he walked up to him casually and said, well, what is it that you do around here at NASA? And the man responded to him by saying, I'm helping put a man on the moon. I'm helping put a man on the moon. This man knew that what he did, how he served, had greater purpose than sweeping the hallways of NASA. He knew that God had positioned him to be there for greater purpose. Now, you and I, we all have a part to play. You and I are helping people experience the kingdom of God through our service, through our acts of love, through our ability to see people that often go unseen. You and I have a purpose bigger than ourselves, and sometimes it means being willing to serve when others won't, being willing to give even if it hurts a little, or even putting yourself at a disadvantage for the advantage of another. I ask you to prayerfully consider this as we watch this video and respond to how the Lord might be stirring you to action. So, Peter, as we get ready to close, what would you say to us around this challenge today? Um, I've watched that video about a million times. but It makes me cry every time. Here's why. Every day, every night, I had always dreamt, will that man come back? For you who are listening online, you're at home. You're having a meal. To not know someone will be there for you is a tough one. And so for me, for Midtown Church, to say there's a hundred places you could go, but to say we want to know the kids in Ghana and we want to visit them really makes me think of, I wish I had that as a street kid, but somehow he came. Though he came later, he changed my life. And that's what you're about to do for those little boys and girls, to say they matter, to say they have a name, that you're going to change their lives forever. To them, they've been praying for you, and some of them are watching online today because they knew you have this this Sunday. And there's more than a 1,000 just looking for someone to say, what's your name, who you are, and for Pastor Ephraim and his wife to be able to be there and take your pictures with them and say, I brought my family, my entire church family, so you can choose them. I never could ever choose food. I had my first pair of shoes at 17. 
to be able to choose a sponsor, you're going to break the cycle and give dignity to who most of them did not have dignity. Are you going to change their lives? Their mom to say, my daughter is not to get married at 12. My daughter has potential because someone in the United States believes in soul. And the other part, I love your church. There's many of you that look like them. For the very first time, they get to choose someone that looks like them. And that is powerful in its own way. So on behalf of family, we, we want to thank you for doing so. So on Wednesday, in about two weeks, the kids will do exactly what you saw. They will gather, go in the tent, and choose you. And then the next Sunday, you get, we call Reveal Sunday, you get to know who chose you. And they will write back and tell you why they chose you. So it's really cool and it's really neat that they're really excited to choose you to bring to their families. Amen. So this commitment is $39 a month. You might say, wow, $39. But hey, you got Netflix, Hulu, Amazon Prime, Disney Plus. I'm just naming the ones I have. <laughs> you know, you go to Starbucks, Chick-fil-A, in and out Five Guys. I'm just telling you my monthly itinerary. Yeah, you ain't got to tell all my business. <laughs> but uh, so this is doable. But for $39 a month, you're pulling an entire family community out of poverty. Uh, happy birthday. God loves you. Uh, and I'm going to be back here next Sunday preaching on part two of being chosen. God bless. Thank you so much for tuning into Midtown Church. Be sure to subscribe to this podcast for weekly messages to stay rooted in the word and for a dose of hope, health, and healing in your life. Want to get more connected to Midtown Church? Just visit us online at midtownchurch.org.